Hello and welcome to Hey, I Loved That Movie, the podcast where we re-watch the films we loved when we were younger to see if they still hold up. I'm Dan. I'm Michael. I'm Helena. And for this episode, we have a returning guest, the author of the Hunted series, it's Gabriel Bergmoser. Hey guys. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thank you for coming back. Thanks it's for nice having to see me back. You. You're welcome. I feel like um, before when you guys were doing the intros, I like I sort of had this like brief muscle memory moment from my podcasting days of being like, and I'm gay, but then I was like, oh wait, I get like a proper introduction. How good is this? <laughs> yeah, I realized as soon as we started that we hadn't actually discussed that. So well done. Oh, yeah. look, I probably should have remembered from last time. So let's let's say that one's on me. Well, uh, which movie have you brought to us this week? So I brought Troy to you guys this week. The Brad Pitt yeah. starring masterpiece from 2004, I believe. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Film starring everyone. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had IMDb no open like the whole time, being like, "Well, I know who that is, and I know who that is, but is that like a fat version of that hey, person?" And then I looked up, and it's like, "Yes, it is." Yes, it's kind of like in some ways, like rewatching it again the other night, I was like, it is kind of like an Avengers of actors who appeared in like epic fantasy or historical films during the two thousands slash late nineties. Yeah. So it's really like anybody who ever appeared in any kinds of swords and sandals epic is in this film, basically. Yes. Yeah. And Which it's got is... it's got big LOT a Lord of the Rings vibes as well. Well, yeah, coming I think it came out yeah, one year after the trilogy ended. So uh, yeah. very much hot on the heels of that. Yeah. Do you mean for the fact that it was really fucking long? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I started watching epic for nothing. No, exactly. But yeah, I, yeah. I'm I'm glad that I was given the heads up about its length so that I didn't start it at like eight o'clock last yeah. night. Yeah, you know, it's a funny one because watching it the other night, I was like, there really was this brief period post Lord of the Rings, and I mean, you know, we, we see this happen in Hollywood again and again. It's kind of a cyclical thing where you have one big success, then everybody hurries to emulate it, and it was that period where pretty much every fantasy property that was flying around was getting a big budget Hollywood treatment, but failing that people were making all of these big kind of sprawling sort of not necessarily fantasy, but epics. You know, we saw it in Troy. We saw it with kingdom of heaven. We saw it with Alexander and most of them kind of bombs terribly. And it's really interesting because there was part of me that was like watching Troy being like, wow, they really don't make them like they used to. And then another part of me that was like, I kind of see why they don't make them like yeah, they used to. So there's a lot to unpack there. Well, it, it's, it's cyclical, isn't it? Like, we have like... Now be three so, movies. But, but also like that goes way back into like Cleopatra when that film was made. There were tons of big eight hour long epics where they had to tell the director, no, cut it down. Because that seems to be the story with all of these. It's like the actual film is three hours long, and then the director's cut is like four and a half. Like they really had to yeah. control the director and tell them what to do. Just on that, the, the cyclical thing is really interesting because I do think the last time prior to this that the the story of Troy was adapted in like a big kind of Hollywood, you know, movie adaptation was I think the nineteen fifty six movie Helen of Troy. And, you know, that would have been smack bang in that era that we were looking at, like, Lawrence of Arabia, looking at Spartacus, uh, Ben-Hur, those kinds of films. So it really does speak. To, and, and, and the most recent adaptation of the Troy story was a Netflix series, which kind of, you know, was very much trying to emulate Game of Thrones. So it does kind of feel like every time we have an era of, you know, the epic being realized in one way or another, this story does come back around. And, you know, there's a reason for that. Like, it, it is a great, you know, classic mythological story. But it does seem like there is a struggle in terms of figuring out how to adapt this one which yeah. is really really worth unpacking and discussing i think 
yeah, it's, I, I actually grew up reading, I was given a book called like 100 Greek Myths, which was like a storybook for children. And it was like one of those ones where you could tell a story each night. And I'm pretty sure it was like narrated overall by Homer. He sort of did the bits that like tied it together. I must, I, I mean, I would put money on my mum still having it somewhere. But it was like, so I was sort of familiar with like the the Iliad, but in a in a very gentle kind of, <laughs> you know, like less violent way. Um, so while I knew this was going to be like a, a violent historical thing, I was I was sort of expecting there to be more actual god interference and or slightly less violence. I don't know why. I think I just had quite a nice polished kid friendly version in my head and was oh my goodness. It's a bit gory, isn't it? It is a bit, yeah. Like I, I was sort of the same going in. I only knew fragments of the story. So obviously everyone knows about the big horse that they all hide inside and I knew about like Achilles heel, but I didn't realise that they were both part of the same story <laughs> for some reason. So it was quite interesting watching it and being like, Oh, okay, this is actually all one one thing yeah, itself. It makes you wait for the horsey bit though, doesn't it? Oh yeah, it it, it does. It like, came up at the end and I was like, Oh wow. Finally. I wanna talk about the horse bit. We can we can talk about when that comes up properly. <laughs> Out of curiosity, did you guys watch the the theatrical cut or the director's cut? Uh, director's cut, because it was the only one I could find. It was like I think three hours fifteen minutes. Yeah. Okay. So, so in my mind, Troy is one of those cases where um, you know there, there, there's kind of a, a narrative around like a lot of these you know I guess historical epics from the early two thousands that were seen as not being as I guess creatively successful as somebody might have hoped and. There is a bit of a narrative that a lot of them were saved by the director's cut. You know, you see that in Alexander, you see that with Kingdom of Heaven, which, you know, Kingdom of Heaven was a film that I think was very stunted on release, but has since really been reappraised by the fact that there's this, you know, proper sweeping four-hour director's cut that really delves into what that film was actually supposed to talk about. And that's one of the things where you go, oh, right, that's what that film was supposed to be. Troy is not one of those films. Troy is a film that I, as a kid, really, really enjoyed in its, you know, original theatrical presentation. But I only saw the director's cut a few years ago and I was like, oh, no. Like, you just, like, like it, it feels like the director's cut goes out of its way to ruin everything that I originally liked about Troy. And oh, one no. of the big things is, is the music. Like, a lot of what it adds is just really superfluous and... It also replaces like a lot of what was really great about the original James Horner score from the original theatrical cut. And so it's weird because I do think in some ways Troy is kind of an example of why director's cuts kind of aren't always a good thing because I really don't think the director's cut adds anything. And I'm not saying that the theatrical cut is such a, you know, incredible forgotten classic that, you know, you've somehow spoiled your experience immensely by watching the director's cut instead. But I will strongly argue that the original cut is better, and I don't know what Wolfgang Peterson was doing with the director's cut. I really don't. Oh, what what does it actually add then? If uh, or is it just more tits and gore? Not much. <laughs> uh, mainly more tits and gore, but um, but just like a lot of like, like you know how like in a lot of director's cuts, you'll get a lot of extra scenes between characters that will flesh out relationships or give you a different context as to what's going on and everything. And in the case of Troy, you get those scenes; they just don't really add anything new. Like, and particularly the last, I think the last time I'd watched Troy before watching it for this was the director's cut, and I was so pissed off at it that I didn't watch Troy again for ages afterwards. But watching right. it again for this, I was like, yeah, wow, like, the the stuff in the director's cut really is profoundly unnecessary. And and again, like, not to harp on about it, but, but the music is a really big thing, because I think Troy has a fantastic yeah. score, and the original score does rely a lot on 
on sort of vocals and on drums and on this really kind of primal uh, soundscape that it goes for. All of which is gone in the director's cut. Like all of the um the kind of singing voices are gone. Like the choral voice are gone. That gives it this real oh, sense really? of like epic grandeur. And on top of that, the the Achilles Hector fight, which maybe is the best scene in the film, in the original cut, that is scored entirely with this like drumbeat soundtrack that is so like, like again, it, it's primal. It feels like battle drums. It's really, really like capturing what I think they they're trying to go for with it and then the moment of course when achilles kills hector that's when the proper score comes back in when the chorals come in when the voices come in and you know it's like a humanity comes booming back in after this like scene of just like really visceral stripped back battle that of course appropriately scored by just this drum soundtrack the director's cut replaces it with a track literally taken from the soundtrack of the planet of the apes the remake the tim burton remake <laughs> I, I i have no oh, wow. understanding of why this is but i remember watching the director's cut and being like wait what is this because as a kid i remember being like riveted by by, by the drums and how full-on and how intense this fight scene was and the director's cut just somehow removes all of that and as anybody who ever watched um showing showing my age here and showing the generation i grew up in as anybody who ever watched skins would know when skins got its dvd release and all of the soundtrack all of which were well-known songs were replaced by like license-free songs the show loses half its potency and that i think is also the case in troy and i'm not again suggesting that it had an immense amount of potency to begin with but what potency it did have goes out the window in the director's cut and i've realized that i've gotten very angry very early <laughs> yeah, but you didn't actually watch as well which... yeah. yeah it's it's weird because yeah that that know. explains why like nothing about the soundtrack was standing out to me then because i like i i watched it just over a week ago and it's oh, like yeah, yeah. nothing nothing in this um the score or the soundtrack was that memorable really so that kind of explains it <laughs> it's also it's like a, a lot better part of, than that. yeah a big part of historical epics is the soundtrack like they carry the like you think about all of them uh from like western versions to like eastern epics and stuff like that they the soundtracks are always incredible and to know that it was weirdly replaced do you reckon that was like an editing thing where they just realized that the original didn't fit like it was just slightly out of time and it looked weird. Look, I I, I can't account for that. I mean, given that really? the soundtrack of Troy is maybe the best thing about it, I don't. I, I just I just straight up don't know why. And it's like, and the thing is, even the songs it does keep, it gets rid of a lot of you know, like like I said, you know, the, the chorals or the vocals or those things that kind of give it a lot of oomph. It strips all of those back, and I, I just I just genuinely don't know why. I, I can't account for why that was. I can't account for those choices. But what I can say is that scarcely in my life has there ever been a director's cut that has pissed me off as profoundly as the director's <laughs> cut of Troy does. Because yeah, I've, I've never seen I've never seen the original version. Also, never read the Iliad, so. I, I kind of went in a bit it, blind. Uh, it's really <laughs> funny with the Iliad because I um like my relationship with Troy was basically I think I spoke to you guys last time about coming from a Steiner education and like a lot of emphasis on different mythologies and different sort of historical stories and whatnot. And it would have been in like either my second or last year of primary school that we did like a big big uh, I guess study period on Greek mythology and we studied Troy really closely and I really really loved that story. And when the film came out, I would have been 13 when this movie came out, which in retrospect is exactly the right age to watch Troy. And <laughs> I, I, I oh, adored nice this movie. Like, there was there was a period in my life where Troy was my favourite movie. And I was I was thinking about this before I came onto the recording. I was like, it's funny because there, there seems to be like this handful of movies that I've seen throughout my adolescence and young adulthood where I 
aggressively believe for a really short period of time that this is the best movie I've ever seen. Like Troy was one, Across the Universe was one, Scott Pilgrim was one, where there was this period where I watched that movie over and over and over again and would obsessively tell anybody who would listen that it was my favorite film. And then after the window of like six months or a year, I would almost never watch it again. And Troy was one of those. I think the reason for that was that, you know, I, I saw it at exactly that right age. And, you know, I absolutely adored this film, which then, of course, led me to buy the Iliad and try to read the Iliad. What's really interesting about the Iliad, apart from the the prevalence of the gods in the story, which I think we will come to because I think there's a lot to yeah. talk about around that, is the fact that the Iliad only captures a very, very small portion of this story. Like a lot of the stuff that is the most famous about the Troy story, like, for example, you know, the Achilles heel or the horse, the stuff you guys mentioned before, even, you know, the the judgment of Paris or Paris stealing Helen, depending on which version of it you read, stealing her, seducing her, whatever it might be. None of that's in it. Like the Iliad largely focuses on Achilles and Agamemnon having their spat over Briseis and Achilles refusing to fight and then culminates in the Achilles and Hector fight, and then ends with Hector's funeral. That's the end of it. So you don't see Achilles die, you don't see the Trojan horse, you don't see any of that. So I think a lot of that stuff was sort of filled in by just like either apocryphal myths or or other writings over the years. But that stuff didn't come from Homer, you know? And I don't know if it's because at the point where the Iliad was, Iliad was written, those aspects of the story were just so, such assumed knowledge that he didn't think he had to cover it. But it is a really curious thing for those who don't re- haven't read the Iliad, that it leaves out a lot of, in fact, most of what is the most famous stuff from this story. I I think that's not as uncommon as as you'd think when you when you look at like old texts and things like that. They tend to focus on very big, broad concepts with things like gods and 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 things like that. They very rarely focus on individual humans. They very rarely focus on like the human experience and and people. That's the human experience as a as a as a like a thing to look at is a relatively new idea in comparison to Iliad. Uh, relatively no, I mean it's new. it's very focused on on Achilles and his experience, but yeah, he's also sort of uh, not quite. He's a bit of not he's got god 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 adjacent. His I mean, mum's a, a bit of a god. Yeah, he's a demigod. Like it's not um, it's not about the survival. Whereas of in man the, in this film, itself. she collects seashells. Yeah, she turns up briefly, and, <laughs> and and that's like part of I think the weird identity crisis this movie has, and and I think the weird identity crisis that a lot of adaptations of this story have, where it's it is you know that question of like to gods or not to gods, because yeah. you know it, there are kind of really only two ways to do this story. You know, one is to really embrace the Iliad side of it, where the gods are very prevalent, they're very much a part of it, and they, and they are, are calling much all the shots. Exactly. They're as much active players, if not more so, than any of the ground-level heroes. The other version is to really strip all of that back and go for like a quasi-revisionist version. And it can't be anything but a revisionist version if you strip the gods out of it. And so Troy the movie obviously does veer more heavily on the revisionist side. Like I always liked the touch when I was a kid that, you know, Achilles gets shot several times by Paris at the end, but the only arrow left in him is the arrow in his heel. And so you can kind of see how the story might have spread that it was, oh, you know, he, he could be killed unless he got hit with the heel and it went from there. But the other thing is that this movie kind of hedges its bets a little bit when it comes to the gods, because there's a lot of dialogue from Achilles that implies that he is familiar with the gods and implies that he does sort of know a little bit about them and the way they live and their their envies and their passions and their loves and whatnot. And you would assume that that comes from his mother. And the scene with his mother does also imply some kind of supernatural element to her because 
she essentially maps out his future right there. But if you weren't familiar with the story and you didn't realize that his mother was, as Helena summed up perfectly, a bit of a god, then because because she's not she's not like a full fledged Olympian, is she? She's like a demigod no, or, or yeah, something. Uh, I don't want to say nymph, but it began with an N. I don't know. I must yes. admit, I was reading the spark the spark notes for the Iliad last night at about eleven. <laughs> not all of it went in. Is it uh, is it Thetis? Was that her name? Am I yeah. or am I? I, sh- I should have googled this before I came on. Uh, <laughs> No, it's good that we're all, I mean, we're probably bringing the same amount of information as people who listen to this podcast know about the Iliad. It's not obli- obligatory reading um, <laughs> yeah. for this. But yeah, she she sort of, and yeah, they, she does do this thing, but it comes across as like, if if you go and fight, you'll die. If you stay and don't fight, you'll have a pretty normal, wonderful life, but no one will remember you. And she already seems to know which one he's going to, which decision she's going to make. And that knowledge does imply some kind of, you know, foresight or supernatural understanding, which is weird because it does sit at odds with the rest of the film, which is quite grounded. Yeah, yeah, the way they manage it is just that those like the um, uh, the priests who occasionally are just like, well, the gods are going to be really angry with this. The gods are going to do that. But there's never that proof. And then there's um, obviously Hector sort of spurns the gods. And yeah. then he dies, but you wouldn't, I think without sort of, because they don't show the gods being pissed off like they do in yeah. the Iliad, you don't, you, you can sort of safely assume that he died because Achilles is a better fighter than him. Yeah. Well, the gods yeah. willed it. Where it doesn't really show the gods and that, like, all, all I seem to notice from a lot of it was every time a character was like, we should do this because it's what the gods would want us to do. It turned out to be the wrong thing. <laughs> Because yeah. the priest was always like, ah, oh, the gods want us to go and attack the Greeks while they're sleeping on the shores and set fire to them. Or the gods don't want us to burn the giant horse that's definitely not full of dudes. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, he's like, I mean, that's, that's fairly in line with a lot of the Greek myths where the gods are incredibly capricious, you know, like what you assume is going to please them isn't what's going to please them they'll change their minds and they're very petty i mean famously throughout all the myths the gods are incredibly petty and you know will throw their favor here and there depending on you know who they seem to be taking a shine to that that week um out of curiosity have any of you guys seen the netflix series troy fall of a city no No, i haven't no okay so it's it's interesting i'm not saying it's worth watching because i don't think it is but it's um (laughs) thank you you for sparing us yeah Yeah, you're making me kind of want to watch the theatrical cut theatrical cut of this movie at some point but yeah if i I can find it just looking on yeah the the running times i'm pretty sure i watched the director's cut um so i would say five minutes yeah yeah I would say in that case, if you are going to revisit this story, make it the theatrical cut, don't make it the Netflix series. But yeah. <laughs> the Netflix series is interesting. Like it does, you know, it's got, um, it, you know, a lot of money's gone into it. And the guy who plays Achilles in the series, for example, is fantastic. Like it, it really depicts Achilles the way he should be depicted, which is, you know, every bit the, the noble, egotistical warlord character that he is in this film, but also the fact that him and Patroclus are supposed to be a couple. Like, instead of this film constantly being like, it's his cousin, it's his cousin, it's definitely his cousin. We're going to say cousin as much as we possibly can to, you know, avoid the fact that Brad Pitt could ever, God forbid, be playing a gay person. Whereas the the Netflix series does embrace that entirely. And the guy who plays Achilles absolutely nails it. And you, you feel for him in that show, I would say, in a way that you don't really feel for him in this movie. Although I do think there are some really cool, interesting things that Brad Pitt does in this film. But what the reason I want to bring up the Netflix series is because this Netflix series does bring in the gods. And that to me gives it this like 
even more intense identity crisis than this film has because it's very much a post game of thrones production i think it came out in 2018 and it's very much trying to capture like you know the the brutality and the difficult choice and the moral ambiguity and all of that of game of thrones and the grittiness of it except for the fact that it's got the gods turning up and doing things occasionally and it doesn't really add a lot to it but you're left kind of wondering like wh why are you guys here because it feels like they wanted to include them to give some point of difference from this film because this film obviously was kind of a more gritty grounded take on the story than we might have been accustomed to seeing until that point but including the gods feels really reluctant and half-assed in that series and it makes the series feel incredibly confused and that's why i kind of i, I always think about one of my favorite adaptations of this story was the david gamel troy trilogy a trilogy of novels where that was like the most intensely revisionistic version of this story I think I'd read. And it was really satisfying for that reason. Like, for example, you know, I think from memory, like Helen was really unattractive. Like it was made very, very clear that, you know, the war was never about Menelaus's honor. The war was about Agamemnon needing a pretext to invade Troy, which is subtext in a lot of versions of this story, but that book series makes it like absolutely text. Um, a lot of other things where like, for example, Achilles is not even a major character in those books. He's just this famously brutal, awful warlord who's just really, really good at killing people. And there's no nuance, there's no complexity, there's no noble honor to his character. He is just an absolute brute, which of course he would have been in any realistic context. Yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe the masterstroke of that book series was the fact that the Trojan horse, throughout the book series, they always refer to the Trojan horse, which is the Trojan cavalry. And so what happens at the end is that they don't make a big horse, fill it with dudes and send it in. They ambush the Trojan cavalry, dress in their armor, and ride back into Troy as the Trojan horse, and then kill everybody uh -huh. once they're through the gates, people don't realize who they are. So there's a lot of really clever little things like that. So to me, that book series is kind of the prime example of, you know, how to do a gritty revisionist down-to-earth retelling of this story without having to account for things like, you know, the horse full of guys, or... Uh, Achilles is, you know, his heel or his demigod mother or any of those things. Whereas then I think you look at, like, I think this threaded the needle more successfully than the Netflix show did, but that was a prime example of something that just absolutely did not know how to have its cake and eat it too, and probably shouldn't have tried because you don't have to try, but did somehow regardless. And it, it does sort of, you know, speak to what I think is the fundamental challenge of ever adapting myth, which is, you know, how do you do it in a way it isn't patently ridiculous or doesn't ask you to suspend disbelief to a degree that maybe isn't necessary, like including gods in what, what can just be a big sweeping epic, you know, swords and sandals story. It reminds me actually when we, when we just previously discussed um, Prince of Egypt, like the hangups that Dan and I had, especially was about like the presence of God and having to, you know, the fact that, he, that God sort of appears as the, as the bush, as the, you know the, the clouds in the sky that obviously took us out of the story so much that we struggled to go back in and i think like a very similar thing would have happened obviously without our own sort of social context that we had with um with that film but with yeah showing gods i think is incredibly difficult to do in film because you know of i mean maybe greek gods slightly easier because they they sort of take human appearances mm. but yeah that suspension of disbelief how are you supposed to carry off and also, how are you supposed to then ha have these people have meaning if whatever they do isn't actually decided by them anyway? Well, I think I think the other thing there, which is like, I think, well, I suppose what it is that makes the Greek gods so particularly difficult to depict is the fact that all of the ancient pantheons of gods, I, I, I don't think I'm remiss in saying the Greek gods were A, the most interfering ones when it came to the lives of mortals, 
and be the most childish ones. Like they, they yeah. do not behave like all knowing deities. They behave like, like, you know, capricious, unpleasant children. And they're kind you know, of soap, soap opera level. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's all about, you know, who is, who is who's favorite and who's claimed what and who doesn't like who and who's feuding with who this week. And, and I'm not saying that that isn't inherently interesting drama. I think it can be in the right hands. I just think it is really difficult. Whereas I think in the Prince of Egypt, you know, God in the Prince of Egypt is depicted very much as this kind of unknowable, dangerous force that you cross at your peril. And that to me kind of works because, you know, I, I don't find, you know, I think sympathetic is the wrong word to use when it comes to uh, fictional depictions of deities, but that, that God, I don't find sympathetic or, you know, like, like I should be awed by that God. I feel like I should be terrified of that God, which to me is very true to the Old Testament stories. Whereas I think if you were to depict the gods in any way faithful to the Iliad or faithful to the Greek myths, I think modern audiences would just be kind of like, why? What what are they doing? Like, what what's what's going on with these people? Because because they are just bickering children ultimately. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, they sort of remind me of the um, the gods in Pratchett quite a yeah, bit, absolutely. who are sort of um, obviously he doesn't they don't come up super often, but when they do, they are just playing games, literally playing sort of their version of god chess moving around their heroes and moving around their tokens just to sort of get at each other, regardless of their total disregard for the human lives around them. Like, they're not important. And it's very hard, I think, to have a, um, you know, these two stories being told where one story treats the other characters as so worthless and so unimportant. Yeah. And then you're being told, oh, no, you still got to watch the next three hours of these guys doing stuff. Yeah, yeah, when you know that overall, told, like, it's not no nothing what, to do it's with not them. Up to them. <laughs> you still got to care about these characters, even though nothing they're doing will happen because will have any meaning because of these much more powerful. It's like collecting stars in Mario Party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. We, I don't, I don't think I can think of any example of gods in particular being used in in something like this and it being effective. Every example that I can think of is it kind of ruins the story. Unless you lean into completely into the gods are these powerful complex unless you humanize the gods, there's no real way of doing it. Yeah, or unless maybe the gods in something were like the main characters for that story and everything Does else is just kind of thing? stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I must admit, you... it's been a while since I read that book, but um, but no gods like... in it, right? Is that but that humanizes the god? Yeah, it's also not very not does. on the same sort of epic scale. Not quite. I did read it in primary school. Is it? But I also yeah, read a hundred Greek myths in primary school, so you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking. I'm just spending the whole time thinking of Russell Crowe as Zeus in the newest Thor movie. And... I. When <laughs> I for, I was. It took me a while to realise that it wasn't Gladiator that I was watching. <laughs> For some my brain has merged these two films together, <laughs> and I was like, "This isn't what I thought it was." <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it like it probably you mentioned before it owing a debt to Lord of the Rings, but it probably owes a big one to Gladiator. Realistically, yeah. if you if you kind of look at what it's trying to achieve and what it's trying to evoke, I mean, look, it, it's funny because I do think in some ways it's not like it, it's probably copped a lot of flack over the years for being derivative i don't know if it's that derivative like it, it definitely has a different tone and style to lord of the rings i mean the battle scenes in some ways evoke it but there's also a, a grittiness much more brutal. And yeah. Yeah. Much, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah i can see why young yeah, gabe loved this having read your books yeah. i fully understand why <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's definitely an element there's definitely an element of uh 
yeah, brutal hacking <laughs> and slashing in um, in the hunted that I can see in in uh, Troy. Oh, yeah, just yeah, it's, the it's splatters and like all the sounds. Like they must have had an absolute field day with the oh, what's it called when the person does the sound by like Foley. smashing Foley, just yeah, killing absolutely. all of the watermelons, and really getting that like smush crunch sound right. You know, it's um, there they, look, so hey, many they like, and they were like the ones again that I thought were things that I really liked about this film again was like. It was so gritty and so violent, but then still some of the worst things were off off screen. So like mm. seeing the hammer of was it Ajax or one of them, like his mace yeah. come down and it it comes down off screen, but you hear the sound, you don't actually see the corpse like get exploded. Yeah, there's just like a little bit of like but, a blood so like, spray so or something. Just, that's that's just sort of your imagination that has to do the the work there, and that's always gonna be worse. And, Probably. You know, it's like the bit that always got me, and I, I actually think it's like the more I think about it, the more I think it's like quite a subtly masterful moment. Is when, and I like I remember this being like seen in my head as a kid. It's when Ajax is fighting Hector, and he brings the hammer down on Hector's shield, and it goes through the shield, mm-hmm. and you have that shot of Hector like holding the shield, and the um, sorry, sorry, the the pointed end of the hammer coming yeah. through the shield, and it's literally caked in like viscera and gunk and blood, and there's this moment where you subconsciously go. That's what would happen to Hector's skull if he hit him with this. And you don't need yeah. to see that hammer caving in somebody's skull to know what it's doing to people and know what's going on and know what an absolute brute and a monster Ajax is. And there are a few little moments like that that I really love in this film. You know, there's a lot of yeah. like little clever grace notes and things that I don't think it gets enough credit for. Like, for example, one bit that I love because like it affected me viscerally as a child and it affects me viscerally now is when... You know, you know, when you're a kid and you, you watch movies like this, you know, you watch the action movies and you, you know, you play sword fighting in, in the yards and everything. And you, you know, you, you love Lord of the Rings, you pretend you're Aragorn or whatever it might be. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember doing that as a kid and one of my friends saying to me, yeah, but you know, if like we were in any of those battles, like we'd be killed instantly. And as a naive kid, I go, no, I'd be totally like Aragorn. Like I'd be getting in there and like, I'd be killing all the orcs and I'd be heaps. You know, you think you're going to be Achilles. You think you're going to be Hector. And that's why I think the scene where Paris challenges Menelaus to the duel and gets the cut on his leg and then crawls away is so affecting because it's the moment where for that character, like his naivety really comes home to roost. Like it's the moment where he realizes, oh shit, you know, this is really like, this is real and I'm in trouble here and I'm in over my head. And he literally crawls back and hugs his brother's leg because he can't handle it. And it affects me so much as a kid because I think, other films would just write him off completely as a coward, but he literally spends the rest of his film trying to make up for it. So yeah. there is an attempt there to give him like a proper arc. But beyond that, I think the reason it got to me so much is the fact that I'm like, yeah, that's probably what I would do. Like that is probably yeah, definitely exactly what, what, maybe oh, yeah, what it's easy. would do in that case. It's easy to say you, you'd have a, you know, a hero's death, a gallant death, but when you're in that much pain, but you're not dead, you will yeah, do anything yeah. you can to not die yeah and that includes blubbering and clinging on to your brother despite you know being brought up in this world where honor and everything is you know you've made this oath to save essentially save troy and you can't do it and you're the one that fucked it up in the first place (laughs) exactly and it's set up earlier in the film on the boat when um when paris is like you know i'll go back and i'll sacrifice myself for helen and everything and hector's Mm -hmm. like oh yeah and that sounds really noble to you but you know you you haven't been there you haven't been in battle but like paris is an idiot he doesn't realize it until that moment 
what he's actually up against and what he's actually set in motion. And well, I love never that fought, moment for that reason. Really, has he? He's never fought. He, they bring that. They make that clear yeah. at the start as well. Like, have you ever killed anyone? No. And no. like, have you ever hurt anyone? It's like, no. It's like, okay. So wh- why the fuck do you think you can manage all of this then, mate? Well, you're asking no. other people to fight your wars for you, basically, because you yeah. just don't. You, you just you you are an idiot. You don't know what you've done. Well, that that's like the first time, the only time in his life he's ever had his masculinity tested. Like. This yeah, film is inc- incredible on how it presents masculinity because it is of the time of you need to prove yourself to prove that you're a man. You need to prove your your masculinity. And he goes through his life believing he is the most masculine man in the world because he sleeps with whoever he wants and everyone wants to sleep with him. And to him, that's it. That's masculinity. He's never had it tested and, and that's why he believes he can go out to win these wars and he believes he can do all of this because he always has been. He always has been able to do what he wants. He's just never been had it challenged. Well, and he's then never he had to it... do anything like, yeah, difficult. Yeah. And then he has it direct, literally in the most purest form. He has his masculinity challenged. He is put Absolutely. on in a brutal fight with someone that is clearly better at combat than him. And not only is it the person that's better at combat than him, it it's, it, it, it's the person he stole the woman from. It's the person he believed he was more masculine than because yeah. he'd taken his woman. Like, that's... And the woman had chosen to... Because he says, uh, I didn't steal your woman. You... I didn't steal your woman at night. It was daylight when your woman left you. Yeah. That's yeah. something he says. And it's like, he believes that he... Because of all of that. And then, yeah, the rest of the film is him trying to relearn what masculinity is. And Hector yeah. sort of has this. Hector is pretty much presented, at least to me, as the perfect man. He is he is the perfect man in this film, which Until is really funny. Until he scorns the gods. Well, no, because he's he's the perfect man because that's what Achilles is supposed to be supposed yeah. to be the perfect man, right? Like the your Achilles is the ultimate hero. He is. He's yeah, he, he's like he's like the perfect warrior. Whereas yeah, Hector yeah. would be the perfect man because he's got yeah, the wife and the kid yeah. and the yeah, yeah I get what you mean yeah not not just that like Achilles is for a warrior the perfect man of the time like he is the ultimate fighter which would make him a man however like the difference between him and Hector is Hector is emotional Hector is yeah. is driven by a human force and in the best scene in the film when they're fighting each other. That whole scene, because Achilles is there for revenge. Yeah. Because he killed, Hector killed his... Patroclus. Cousin. Yeah. Definitely cousin. Yeah. Absolutely Definitely cousin. cousin. They Absolutely don't cousin. Um, no one yeah, in, no one no in Greece or cousin. Troy ever had homosexual no. relationships. Not a thing. Not, yeah. Not a thing in no. Greece. They de- definitely yeah. didn't no, have... No. Like, don't think about where they got all that oil from to make the giant flaming balls. <laughs> don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that they used lube balls? I mean, maybe. <laughs> um, but in, in that fight scene, like, yeah. Achilles is the ultimate killer. You watch yeah. him, he, he stalks his prey. Mm. Like he he is emotionless the whole time. He is really careful footed and he is he Hector is meant to be his equal, his human equal. He is not. Like Achilles is so far beyond his uh, Hector's skill, which from what we saw earlier, should mean that Achilles is the more of a man, because he is a better fighter. But Hector is losing every every 
time he tries to fight, he loses a, a little bit more, and he gets really desperate. And he's he's no longer fighting to prove his masculinity; he's fighting to not die. Yeah, and that is really human, and that that is what makes him a man. In comparison, I think it's to also I think they 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 sum it up in the film as well as like um, Hector is fighting for Troy and Achilles yeah. is fighting for himself. Well, yeah. But at the end of that fight, Hector's fighting to survive. Like he's no longer fighting for Troy; he's fighting to not die. Yeah, that whole scene was so fucking good. Like, genuinely, an amazing fight scene. Like, <laughs> brilliant fight. I can't believe that there's no stunt doubles as well. This fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's just it's like there, there is like I mean, you can. One thing about this movie is that you know, watching it, I was like, oh god, I I do miss like. You know, just real people like actually like yeah. doing it instead of just like you know because because if it was made today you know that it would be like the, you know it would be heaps of cgi and they'd be like back flipping over each other doing all kinds of stuff and it would feel weightless and it would feel hollow and it wouldn't feel real but there is like such a such a, like i mean the, the you, not only do you like like i think the sound design is really great with like the sounds of the swords being pulled out and the sounds they make when they're flung through the air and everything i think that's really memorable but it's like you you feel the metal clash and you feel like, like the, the the crunch and the the impact of every single blow particularly in that scene and because the film has gone to such pains to show us how great both of these men are as warriors and because you do like hector so much i mean i think it is a genuinely fantastic performance from eric banner because you know yeah. it's you you, you admire him. Oh, you're and rooting you for like him, him the whole and... time. Yeah, totally. totally. And you also kind of don't want either to die because you have, you know, it does show the emotional side of of um, Achilles. Yeah, uh, the, the loving side. Like you know that he <laughs> loves his cousin, cousin, uh, and um, <laughs> he, but and he's so torn because obviously he knows the reason his cousin died is ultimately his fault. Yeah, yeah. Because um, again, it, it comes back to what. And this I'm, is all he can do. This his idea of what he can do to right this wrong is revenge it yeah. doesn't make Even him though it's happy. his fault it, does, it won't yeah it, it doesn't bring it won't bring practicals back it won't you know exactly. resolve the war it won't save anyone else it just brings him that moment of i've done something to try yeah. and right this wrong and that's like well have you though and it, yeah. I, I think that's like so beautifully done by the scene. And again, it's like one of those things that I, one of those little things about this movie that I kind of go, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, it pops a lot of flack and a lot of that flack is, is fair enough, but I do think there are certain things it does that I really like. And one thing, you know, that I, I find very moving is the scene where, where, where like after the fight where Achilles is wrapping Hector's body to give it back to Priam and he mm. breaks down and cries over Hector's yes. body. And that thing where he goes, I'll see you soon, my brother. And it's that moment where you realize he's, he's won nothing from this. This really hasn't, you know, he hasn't. Yeah. 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 Cool. He's, he's, he's done this like epic fight that we remember throughout the ages. He's gotten what he wanted. He's like, he's consolidated his glory and his legend in that moment, but it hasn't mattered because he's still lost the first he loved. He's still just kind of proved himself to be a monster to Briseis. And now he's got Priam just coming to him in this moment of humanity, kissing his hands and being like, please give me my son back. And it, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter in the face of, actual connection and he realizes that in that moment and he breaks down and he kind of realizes how futile it all is and that's like that that i think is like a kind of moment that particularly for this era like a lot of those kind of you know heroic male stars you know your brad pitts your tom cruises whoever many of them wouldn't go that far in a moment like that like to have a moment where you know the action hero character fully just breaks down in An like actual sobbing 
Yeah. Like, yeah, not like, you know, just like one, like, you know, masculine tear running down the cheek, but like full on convulsing sobs. Like it's, it's a moment of incredible humanity. And I think it really, really lands. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. I was really touched. Now. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really get like the man figure actively like being that emotion. Yeah. That much, that much remorse and that much guilt just all like literally coming out in floods and the, and it just makes it, it makes the it makes the Trojan horse and the and obviously him the the fight at the end sting that much more because you feel acutely that betrayal of Priam and of Troy when yeah. they agree to you know we're going to have this truce for twelve days to do the funeral and you know that he like um, Achilles does believe that he does that this guy deserve that um, Hector deserves a proper funeral. And the proper twelve days, and it's the that that hit as well of well, is it twelve? We have twelve days of of uh, funeral, and it's like, oh, so do we. And he realized, okay, yeah. actually, it's pretty much the same people, really, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, it's the same gods, it's the same, uh, yeah, sa- same culture. It like they really, yeah, the fighting is is just over. It's just power. It's just yeah. over land. That's all yeah, it is. Yeah, it's just the land. It's over land. Yeah, it's the the yeah. Greeks wanting to also have Troy as well as everything else they have, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like Agamemnon yeah. being uh, power and hungry use, and the, the women as a reason. Yeah, they use the women as yeah. A, yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's it's <laughs> and that yeah, it's it's never really about um, Helen. No. Also, very, and, very know, pleased that such about... a great myth has such a great name. <laughs> even Menelaus like recognizes that, you know, like when he yeah. says when um when Agamemnon basically says to him before the Paris fight, you know, I didn't I didn't come here for your wife, and Menelaus yeah. is like, okay, well, let me let me get what I want, which is like basically to prove my masculinity by yeah. killing the guy who stole her, and you know, then you can you can just attack them and betray them right after that, and then we both get what we want. You know, it's it's yeah. very very clear from the start that Agamemnon does not care about Helen in the slightest. But yeah, well, he again, says he says how, it basically says how convenient it is at the start, yeah. like when his brothers after his it's brothers come and said, please please come and yeah, he's like, yeah, what a what a useful uh, useful little thing this Paris boy's done for us. Yeah, I do find Paris such a weirdly jarring name in this, just because it doesn't sound Greek anymore, does it? It's just no. yeah. capital city of France. <laughs> <laughs> um, everyone else, like yeah, Patroclus and um, yeah, all the other like and Achilles. names and Achilles, Achilles and Agamemnon. Helen's a really interesting character because, much like every woman in the film at um, this point, very had very little like autonomy. Yes, uh, which is frustrating. Um, but there is like really interesting during the fight between with Paris, um, when he breaks down and cries. Helena definitely, Helena definitely regrets the decision that she makes. Yeah, I think she to, regrets yeah. it from the moment she's on the boat. But, yeah, but there's watching Paris go from a what she considers a man, the fantasy of him, not the actual him, and then she gets to see the actual him. And I think she regrets the the. She realizes it's not worth it for this man. Uh, I, I don't know but that like, Romeo then, Juliet thing where they they're both essentially children. Yeah, yeah, no. There is also that just just to slightly counter that there is that scene after the fight when she's stitching him up, 
and he's basically bemoaning the fact that he's he's failed and he's embarrassed himself and everything and she's like i don't want a warrior she's like you know i yeah. want someone i can grow old with you know i live with a warrior for all those years with menelaus and you know that that scene the fight scene between menelaus and paris is such a brutal reality because he's facing off against someone who is this huge hulking brute of a man and and that is the reality for whom most warriors would have been back then you know like achilles has this sort of glorified idea of it Hector does it because he has to, like, and because he doesn't fight because he wants to fight. He fights because he's, that's what he has to do. He's Hector, he's defending his city, that's it. And, you know, it's, so, so I do think there is that, but, but I think you're right in that there is regret from Helen's part. But, you know, I think that regret plays out through the film when you see her try to leave, you see all of that, you see the moments where she tries to escape. And I think that's the moment where she goes, well, if Paris dies here, what's the point? Like, not only yeah. have I, not only have I lost Paris, but all of these other people have lost their lives. All of these other, you know, all these other fatherless children, uh, yeah. all these other widowed mothers and everything, and that that's on me. And on top of that, I might have lost Paris as well. Like, I do think Diane Kruger does quite a good job of, like, showing throughout the film how much pain and regret and remorse there is from Helen. And if anything, I do just kind of wish that the film had found a bit more space for, like, a bit more of an arc for her. Because for the first, yeah. like, because like, I'd kind of forgotten before I rewatched it the other night like how much she actually has to play in terms of how much the whole thing pains her and tortures yeah. her. But then in the second half of the film, she does kind of just sort of recede into the background a little bit. And I know yeah. that's partly the shape of the story as it was originally written, because Helen is inside the incident, but doesn't really do a lot after that. But I would kind of have liked it if she'd been given a little more meat in the back half of the film, you know? They yeah. changed enough of other stuff they could have given. Could well, I mean, they changed her outcome, because doesn't she... Yeah. Because in, in the original myth, she goes back with Menelaus. Like, he, he doesn't die. Yeah. He takes her back. So so even even her ending of getting to... Like, it's implied that Paris will join her, but you don't you don't know what happens to Paris and Briseis, but I think the assumption is that they get out. And that changes their story as well, because Paris dies in the original story as well. And I don't remember what happens to Briseis in the original. I think she might go back with Agamemnon. I, I actually, I just straight up don't remember. But, you know, yeah, so they, Agamemnon they have... Agamemnon claims her back, and that's yes. the thing that pisses off. Um, Achilles so much yeah yeah um yeah it's... yeah I don't remember the exact details I'm sure it's in my hundred Greek myths I'm sure there is there is a bit on somewhere in there oh, yeah God, yeah but oh, gosh no, none um... of us are masters on the classics uh, yeah <laughs> we don't know that much I just know I mean I mean one thing that I was thinking were uh like to do with Achilles as well like towards the end the whole Achilles heel thing I think if anyone got shot through that tendon, it'd fuck them up anyway. <laughs> so, like, oh, yeah. it's yeah. not... It shouldn't just be like specifically can... him. Any warrior that got shot there would probably not do too well after that. They're not going to be walking. <laughs> no. They're never going to be walking. <laughs> that's the thing with, like, all gods, though. It's like, this is how you kill the gods, that that will kill anyone. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like the, the whole thing with vampires, stake through the heart. I think that'd kill most people. Yeah. I'd, be, I'd be at least yeah. upset. And also being shot with a silver bullet would probably still hurt. Yeah. yeah. I'd be miffed. I would be mildly miffed, you yeah. know. Like I have to I have to confess it would it would put it me ruin out. my day. Yeah. yeah. With silver, you're more likely to get an infection. Like <laughs> Um but, Yeah. Can we talk about the horse? Because the whole the whole film feels like like the okay, so the reveal of the horse feels like something that they would use, like the techniques of they talk about it, and then there's like the big sweeping shot up to the horse. Feels like the same techniques they use to and present like a new character in the MCU. 
<laughs> it feels like a big reveal of like an MCU character. <laughs> Surprise! Here's Spider Man. This character. Like when they put Spider Man in in, in, yeah, in America, they... like it had that that feel to it. Like every like the director knew everyone was waiting for the horse. <laughs> really well, like really in a sitcom where a character comes in, everyone cheers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the horse. <laughs> it had that vibe. It was better looking than I thought it was going to be. I liked that it because it's made out of the um. Out of the bits of the boat, so it has got that curvy kind of. Mm. Yeah, I really, I did really like that sort of aspect of it because I, I mean, could have been worse. But yeah, I really. Now that you've told us that the- that that retelling where it's actually they they just they do the um the yeah the thing with the cavalry, wearing the cavalry. armor and riding on the horses. That that sounds that does sound a lot better. <laughs> yeah. The idea of the Trojan horse works really beautifully as like a fable, you know, the idea yeah. of mm. the, the danger being hidden behind this thing and you not, like, you know, it's, it's the whole don't look a gift horse in the mouth, beware of Greeks bearing gifts, you know, like it, it lends itself beautifully to those kinds of things. And as, as a mythological apocryphal story, it works really well in a largely realistic retelling or, or you know, comparatively realistic retelling to some of the other ones, you do kind of watch it and you go there's almost like a faint embarrassment i think to this film to how it handles the horse because it's kind of like everything else they've sort of paired back so much that it's kind of like you do need to work a little bit hard to justify why nobody except for paris is like do you want to maybe look inside the horse like yeah paris is like burn it burn the thing it's like yeah do it why is this horse snoring (laughs) the thing is it's like even paris saying burn it I'm like, if he's advocating to burn it, he must have an idea of why the horse is bad news. And there aren't that many logical ideas other than maybe there's some guys in there and maybe we should investigate that. (laughs) So that's kind of why I think, you know, if if you are going for like a big sweeping mythological tale where, you know, emotional logic takes place over logic logic, then yeah, I can see doing the horse traditionally and, and doing it that way. And I think there's a way to make it work. However, I do think, I do think the horse in this film jars and the the David Gamel take of, of ambushing the cavalry and using that, something like that I think would have worked really, really well yeah. because there's there's a logic to it and it feels like it belongs in this world. Or, yeah. or you know, alternatively, work a little bit harder to really play up the idea that it's like, you know, maybe you set up early in the film that, oh my God, I'm, go- I'm going for movie maintenance here. I'm so sorry. Yeah, we've basically just stolen your old podcast. Most of the films we go, we get to the end of them, we go, we could have done this better. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, you know, that, was, it could have that been... was the premise of my job for three years. So, <laughs> but, you know, like, if you, maybe like you, you set up early in the film... Um, you know, maybe set up the idea that it's like if you lose a battle, you leave a gift. You know, like yeah. that, that's yeah. a tradition yeah. or something. Or, or you set up the fact that it's like you know the Trojans are so devout to like horses and everything they can be blinded by that. Or you know, I'm, I'm not saying any of those are perfect solutions, but I'm just saying do something with it. You know, like yeah. something to kind of ground it a bit more because it does feel not particularly thought through in the context of a film that seems to be going for a more gritty, grounded, realistic take on this story. Yeah, mm. even the conversation they have, it felt like they were desperately. It felt like the writers were desperately mm-hmm. trying to find a reason for the people to want the horse. Oh, yeah, right. they're like, quick, say it's the gods. The, god. the gods want it. It's cool. <laughs> Although normally the yeah. gods want a sacrifice, so burn the horse. <laughs> but it's a reverse sacrifice. You get the horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's... Oh, yeah, it's it's really hard. Like they. They very much rely on the fact that everyone's just so excited to see the damn horse. Yeah, the the one bit of Greek myth yeah. that everyone remembers that they'll just let it let it slide. 
like if they did the cavalry thing, you reckon was... it would have been disappointing in the film to not get? Nah, I'd have been I'd have been really satisfied to have After, it, like, the Trojan horse be something hours. that actually makes a bit of sense. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's the thing. It's like it's it's kind of harkens back to what a lot of what we were saying with the Prince of Egypt. Like you know where there are aspects of the, like like I think it was in that episode somebody suggested um you know the fact that it was like when, when they go and they cross the Red Sea or they, they before they part the Red Sea it's like well what were you planning on doing if you didn't exactly. part the Red Sea yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Control, you know? <laughs> they but, get there and it's like now what <laughs> yeah but it, but it is one of those things where it's like if you're if you're adapting myth or adapting anything really there is a certain point at which but like I think maybe especially myth or especially these like you know cornerstone stories there are certain things you do kind of have to include one way or another, and you mm, kind yeah. of can't change the same way that you can change, you know, a Captain America comic from the 70s, for example. And that is one of those things where it's like you are a bit beholden to it. And I think the David Gamel approach was clever because it, you know, it gave you the Trojan horse. It just gave it to you in a really different way. Whereas I think in this film, it's like, I, I do think it is a struggle because the Trojan horse is the most famous part of this story. And, you know, it's like, if I, I do think there would have been, because I, I agree with you, Helena, that I think doing something different or finding like a clever way and not literally showing a big wooden horse done well, I think would have been fine. But I can totally see how studio executives in the early 2000s would have been like, if we don't give people the Trojan horse, they'll be disappointed. If we don't give people the thing that is most famous about this story, they'll be disappointed. And you're kind of beholden to it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to like suggest that the, you know, the creators of this film wanted to do something different and were constrained from it. But I do think there is a, I, I think there is a slight awkwardness to how the horse is dealt with in this film that to yeah. me suggests a level of discomfort with it being there to begin with, you know? Yeah. Like you can tell it's uncomfortable just by the reveal. Yeah. Like it was revealed. Nothing else in the film is revealed that way. Yeah. Yeah. Even, Ach even Achilles isn't revealed that way. Oh, Achilles is revealed wonderfully, though. <laughs> if you're part of that hunt, bed, yep. <laughs> um, an idea that I had would echo very much the Lord of the Rings: is have the Trojan horse instead be a really scary, terrifying battering ram. Yeah, something grunt. that actually gets big through. grunt. <laughs> is that is, yeah? Is that the name of the yeah the the big battering ram in? One of the battles in Lord of the Rings. I can't remember yeah, which one he's Helms, in. Yeah, the I think it's in. Yeah, and it's actually the yeah. Battle of the Pelham of Fields. So that's the one. Yeah. I've just disappointed my mother so, so much. Um, yeah, I think like that could be a way. So it's like the, because the whole idea of having it full of men being sneaky just doesn't because there's nothing bloody sneaky about the way these people fight. No. Ever for them to suddenly be like, oh, and we're gonna sneak out. It's I... like these guys don't know how to be quiet. They're just gonna be burping and farting like the entire <laughs> way into Troy. Yeah, I, um, I think if they had to like do the whole movement thing, uh, if they'd like presented them as having being good strategists early on, then it would have worked. Mm. But yeah, because they're they're essentially brute force. Yeah, or like it, like it they really. Make any sense. They've briefly mentioned a couple of times, oh, the only way, like one, like the tro Trojans do mention, like once they're in the walls, the city yeah. is lost. But there's, yeah, they don't, yeah. the, the, the Greeks don't actually say that. They just keep, yeah. you know, keep on keeping on trying to do this siege, um, which is like, it's just like, yeah, if they'd had a little bit more strategy instead of what, what do we get is like Agamemnon stabbing the map. Yeah. And <laughs> that's kind of it. We don't, there's no like, at least with Greece, uh, at least with the Trojans, you see their meetings. Yeah. Mm. 
um, and then deciding what to do. Whereas you don't really get that. All you get from the from the Greek side is the is the where's Achilles? We need Achilles. Go and apologize to Achilles. Stroke his ego. That kind of thing. And, and that speaks as well to like. And I don't know if it's like like weirdly for a film that is depending on which version you watch, either pushing three hours or over three hours long. There are, I think, a few sort of classic characters who are given short shrift in this film, and one of them is Odysseus because Odysseus is you know one of the most central characters in the mythology. I mean, he yeah. like he literally got a, you know, an ancient times version of a spin-off in the, in the Odyssey. So, you know, <laughs> like he's, he is a memorable beloved character for a lot of reasons. And I look, I love Sean Bean as much as the next person, but I do feel like it's kind of a non-entity in this movie. Like, you know, the idea of Odysseus as the really crucial strategist who Agamemnon was using to come up with the cunning ploys and the plans to get back to the Trojans, like that, that's not really there. And you don't, like, there's no indication of Odysseus being this great intellect or strategist until yeah, not with the Sean Bean's a- Yeah, not with Sean Bean's accent as well. When everyone else is doing <laughs> no, very oh, strong, yeah. Bri- like, yeah, Aragorn. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say, also, uh, I lo- love Brad Pitt, but he goes, he's either Aragorn or he's just an American. Brad Pitt, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, he's so gorgeous, though, I don't care. <laughs> it's just so nice to look at this film is very very aesthetically pleasing and i think if you can look past the accent issue with brad pitt it's a really good performance like, oh yeah, yeah he's really good as achilles yeah, yeah. And, and pretty much everyone and, you know, like, like across the board the performances are like and even you know and i think i've i've said this before but you know like whoever thought cast whoever whoever had the idea of casting brian cox and brendan gleason as brothers mm. like genius because oh, yeah. like and i love both of those actors, mm. you know, they're, they're, they're both among my favorite actors. And just watching the two of them just absolutely chow down on scenery throughout this film mm. is such a delight. Because, like, Brian Cox, like, like, I love Brian Cox anyway, because you read any interview with him, and the fact that he is this, like, classically trained actor who just does not give a fuck. Like, what was that What was that great quote where, like, somebody asked him recently about method acting, and he just cut them off, and he was like, no, nah, I'm too old, I'm too tired, I'm too talented for any of that shit. Like, he just does not care. Like, and I love the fact that he just doesn't take himself that seriously, he just gets in there, he just does the job, and you can tell that he's relishing this, the same way that he, like, relishes pretty much any role you put him in. And it's the same with Brendan Gleeson, you know? Like, he's just... He's like, and they're both like, for a film that does sort of, incidentally, given that it was written by David Benioff, a film that does sort of veer into that Game of Thrones, I don't know what side we're on aspect, particularly when it comes to the Achilles and the Hector fight. I do think a shortcoming of the film is the fact that Agamemnon and Menelaus are such one dimensional villains. But if you're going to have these total mustache twirling, straightforward villains, you can do a lot worse than casting those two actors to play yeah. them because they're purely by merit of what those actors bring to the table, they become compelling, even though the way they're written absolutely should not be. Yeah, they like everyone in this film was was great because yeah, it's, Eric Banner is Hector, and yeah. Legolas oh, is oh, uh, Paris. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, how is he even more of a twink <laughs> as Paris than he is as Legolas? <laughs> Everyone had to be waxed for this film as well. I was, I was, I was reading some of the, yeah, some of the notes on this. Everyone had to be waxed. Um, there's not a scrap like... of body hair, apart from obviously Agamemnon. <laughs> Everybody sort of forgets now, but like you know that um that. That era in the early 2000s where Orlando Bloom was like the biggest heartthrob going around, and you know, in the Lord of the Rings era, 
And there is something like quietly subversive about his casting in this because you know you you could imagine that his agent would have said no no you can't play it. it's, it's like a classic thing about um what was it like will smith turning down Django unchained because he didn't get to kill the bad guy he was oh, just okay. like no no no. king schultz kills the bad guy i i want to do that and he refused to do and you know he refused to do it because he didn't get to kill the bad guy or like the stories you hear in the fast and furious films where like like vin diesel's manager who i think is his sister like comes in and makes sure that nobody punches him more than he punches them or the yeah they've got like a point system or something yeah <laughs> yeah but also where it's like you know the vin diesel is in furious seven like the vin diesel jason statham fight where like technically jason statham doesn't lose because what's the line is like you know you forgot the first rule of a street fight the street always wins then the ground just conveniently collapses under jason yeah. statham so that conveniently nobody loses the fight but it, you can just tell that like particularly in the early 2000s like orlando bloom on the cusp of superstardom there was some agent who would have been saying to him you cannot take this role because it's going to completely fly out the window like any credibility you have as an action star because the character is such a wuss but he did it anyway, and there is something bold and subversive about the fact that literally coming off Legolas, he did a role that is not flattering for him at all. Yeah. And there is something, you know, quite... And, and the fact and that he, he throws himself into arrow, it. He is ugly crying. Totally. <clears throat> totally. And, like, and that's the thing. It's like, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a secret that Orlando Bloom is not the greatest actor in the world, but I do think that mm. in this role, he's perfect. Like, he's perfect for this part because he totally is convincing as the kid who thinks he is, you know, the epitome of, like, you know, charming warrior masculinity, but who's never actually been faced with that. And then when he's confronted with it, he doesn't know how to deal with it because, of course, he doesn't because he's never been in that situation before and he's totally unprepared for it. And I think that he he was spot-on casting in this particular role in this particular film. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he plays he plays the pretty boy because that, that's what the character is pretty boy totally absolutely he was and like he he even says like orlando bloom did to make a statement like what he thinks of paris and he was like yeah he's a like he's just a total pathetic idiot like he he knew what he was getting into and he knew what and it's um i'm I'm really glad he did it because like yeah he does he does capture it so yeah it's so convincing that you could tell he knows he's pretty but he doesn't realize that he's all theory no practice when it comes to the actual hard stuff thinking about it that character that kind of like horrifically pathetic person doesn't really exist in film that much it's not a nice one it's not a nice one to play no but like, that's the what i mean is, is it because actors don't want to play it well i would i think it's largely that but i would also go a step further and say that character who is and, and and i do think that there is and this this goes into like territory that you know we'd have to take another three hours to discuss yeah. but like you know <laughs> from, from a creative standpoint i'm seeing a lot right now where i do think that we have in our entertainment there is a certain puritanism that has crept back into it where there is an unwillingness to deal with gray areas or deal with ambiguity anymore yeah. and i think that yeah characters like paris can still exist they won't be pretty boys they won't be cast by actors who are as big as orlando bloom was in the early 2000s they won't be timothy chalamet now (laughs) no like timothy chalamet would not do this and they certainly will not get a redemption arc they certainly will not be allowed to be as, as, as unflattering as this but also still be allowed to still be sympathetic. And and I think that this does speak to this weird shift that we've seen where, you know, and I, and I think that the best way to encapsulate it 
is to look at the run of Game of Thrones, where you go in the early seasons of Game of Thrones, it was all about the moral ambiguity. It was all about the gray areas. It was all about the heroes doing bad things and the villains doing good things. And by the end, like with the, and that's why the, the finale with Daenerys was so jarring, was because mm. by the final three seasons, any semblance of moral ambiguity had gone out the window and you had the good guys and you had the bad guys and that was it. Whereas like, I think if the show had actually stuck to its guns and, you know, not just basically adopted all the trappings of essentially classic high fantasy in its final three seasons, which to be fair, I, I genuinely don't blame the writers for because they ran out of the source material and they, they were not doing the assignment they signed up for. Hmm. But that is why Daenerys is about turn, which I think in the books will probably work fine because it yeah. will be built up to and it will still oh, feel Oh, like it's ever getting cool. written. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you know, okay. I, I, I think <laughs> but the thing is that there, the there has been this shift where there was this, I, I do genuinely believe that in the 2000s, and I don't know if maybe that was a post 9-11 thing or whatever, but but even in the 90s, I think it exists as well. There was a willingness to to sit in the discomfort and to have yeah. characters who, sympathetic characters doing bad things or having moral failings or having failings of courage that then they would be allowed to come back from because that's what a character arc looks like. But, you know, we don't get that anymore. Like, you know, the Marvel heroes are all uniformly heroic and yeah. uniformly going to do the right thing. And that's um, it. And, and that kind of is what we expect for entertainment now. And I... I think it's not only asinine it's destructive because yeah. it teaches people that unless you are a paragon of virtue and perfection you are somehow a failure and i think that and, that is dangerous it reminds me of skins the three the three different series of skins we have yeah where we have tony being the main character in the first one who is, who is a psychopath he's a psych he's awful <laughs> yeah. but you're kind of you, you know he's, he's charming he gets girls he's very yeah. much parisian in that respect and he gets rid of the show. I mean, he does get him. It destroys him. And it, yeah. it makes him more sympathetic in the second season when he loses everything that gave him his yeah. power. Like he loses his his wit and his charm and everything after yeah. he gets hit by the bus. And then he has this, like, I wouldn't, uh, it's been a while since I've watched Skin, so I don't know if I'd go as far as say it's redemptive, but no. he does have like an arc that adds texture to him. And that, you know, it's, yeah. it's that classic thing that I love where it's like, you know, you you set up a character to be one thing and then you subvert them and you do something interesting. You reveal, it's Steve Harrington yeah. and Stranger Things. You know, you yeah. reveal that they're not quite who you thought they were. And that to me is so interesting. And I mean, Stranger Things is relatively recent, but that feels like the last time I saw that. That feels like the last time I really saw in that first season, not the more recent yeah. ones, but in that first season, I really saw that interesting I, subversion yeah. where it's kind of like, I don't know whose side I'm on with this person. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's also like that whole idea of every character, because every character we have now is this perfect archetype. Whatever archetype they are, they are it too. And they very rarely do anything wrong. Good characters never do anything bad. And bad characters never do anything good. I think that's a problem because uh, for for like an audience, for like a mass audience, because people are so used to that, and that is like how a lot of people have viewed a lot of media. Whenever anyone goes, whenever there is a character written that goes against it, there is such a backlash of like this character wouldn't be like this. They should they shouldn't be like this. It's bad. Mm -hmm. It's like no characters are meant to make that because you get it with the the latest Game of Thrones series. They're like vaguely making bad decisions like the good characters are vaguely being morally gray and people are reacting really negatively to it is this and the house like, of dragons stuff yeah yeah it's like let, let them be yeah. let these good characters make bad decisions you get a much more interesting story out of it yeah hu i mean I, hubris and like yeah people being yeah. like that is such a huge part of greek storytelling that we've just been like nah not any not anymore because it's, it's the I call it the Disneyfication of media, where everything is being made with kids in mind. 
even if kids aren't meant to be watching yeah. it, everything is made to be that sort of like we can't go too far this way or this way. Um, it's meant to be it will brand it. I, I think that's also down to the reason that happened so much in the two thousands and not now is how much money was in Hollywood. Like you, yeah. you can't just make films anymore like they used to. And someone pointed out, I forgot who it was, but there was an actor talking about it about how DVD sales were so important to how many films got made and how yeah. films in the 2000s were designed to be rewatched because they had to be they had to sell on DVD because they just didn't make much as much money in the cinema whereas now films are designed to make as much money as they can in the cinema because they just don't make money after that i think that's also a problem because you can't have these like bits that you missed and like the complex character stuff because you have to understand it as soon as you see it. Yeah, because yeah, then I suppose it's just all streaming and that these days, isn't it? Yeah. So no one's going out buying, people aren't buying stuff as much. I mean, you can't, you know, like like something like, say, Stranger Things or whatever it might be, like even like The Mandalorian or something that's, you know, on a streaming service, like, yeah, you know that people have that streaming service because they want that show, or, or that, that show is a, is a value element for why people would have that streaming service. But, yep. you know, you can't probably measure... Like, Stranger Things, I'm sure there's, like, merchandise and everything, but, like, does Stranger Things make money in and of itself the same way that a TV show or a movie used to with DVD sales and stuff? Like, like no, it's just, it's an added value element on Netflix that is a reason you might have Netflix. But the yeah. show itself, you know, its popularity might bring more people to it, but it's not generating revenue itself. It's just keeping your subscribers there. So I think, I think that's a really interesting point. And it's like, and I think that there is a, you know... I, I guess it, may, it brings me back to the Last Jedi. You know, I always think about like the, the like. I think the Last Jedi has kind of, in a lot of ways, broken what people want from block or, or what studios will commit to in blockbusters. Because I love that film, but the backlash to it was yeah, so it severe. Was, it was bad. So much of it was, and, and so much of it was down to the fact that it depicted Luke Skywalker as human, <laughs> and you had so many people being like, "No, he's supposed to be this big hero." And and I think part of that was because people grew up sort of. And the thing is. Go back and watch the original trilogy again. Luke Skywalker is not an unimpeachable hero. He gives up so easily. Mm. He's like, you know, he's he, yeah. he has an arc and he overcomes that. And that's what makes him good. But I think The Last Jedi feels like a very logical continuation of that arc. But people sort of lashed out. People really hated that. And so I think that's made studios really, really gun shy. But then on the other hand, it's like with Game of Thrones, you've had people often on the other side of the political aisle getting really upset at characters doing bad things in the original run and getting very loud on social media about it. And that sort of led to you know, Game of Thrones being quite scared to have that same moral ambiguity. And that's what I found really refreshing about House of the Dragon. I don't give a shit about any of those characters, but at least they're making, you know, like, at least they're making yeah. interesting, dark, compelling choices. And and the fact of it is, it's like George R. R. Martin is just so powerful that he's just like, no, I'm going to write it the way I want to write it. And, you know, to me, it's like, well, if you don't like characters making morally ambiguous choices, don't watch the show. And I, But I think that said, that is more baked into the fabric of something like Game of Thrones than it is something like Star Wars. But, you know, I will always mourn the future that Star Wars might have had if people had just been a little bit more receptive to the slightly ambiguous, you know, yeah. the slightly less kind of, you know, glowing version of their heroes that The Last Jedi offered. Because, you know, I think it offered the most interesting version of Star Wars we've seen since George Lucas's days. But, you know, I think yeah. the studios are just going to be way too young to ever try that again. Like, it, it was... I, I really enjoyed it because it brought something different. And like you were saying about the Luke Skywalker oh. thing, it reminds me of how everyone always was always like, oh, Boba Fett's the most amazing character. I want him in loads of stuff. He's barely in the movies. It's yeah, people's imaginations yeah. of playing with the toys that, that make oh, him wow. that great. 
So then when that Almost Boba like Fett... nostalgia. Yeah. Like in how yeah. We Weird that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, their, their ideas of this character, like having these awesome adventures outside of it, means that no matter what they did with some sort of actual Boba Fett TV show, it's going to be a disappointment. Yeah. <laughs> like Just like Flubber. Yep. <laughs> but, and and then you look at every Star Wars film that was kind of made after that. It's all made with spectacle. It's all made with like huge nonsensical twists that they put every ounce of effort into not into hiding from from the audience. Like the actors don't get full scripts anymore because of that. Yeah. And and it, and then you get you end up with these like dramatic twists that are that cool when you watch it the first time. But they don't make any sense, and they're not good for the story. <laughs> like the, I, I I can't even tell if it's a joke with the emperor Pal Palpatine. Yeah, right. Yeah, in in the last one. Yeah. I like when I first heard that, I was like, oh, that's funny. That's clearly like I thought that was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I thought that was like someone was like, this is how stupid Star Wars was going. And it was like, no, that's real. I was like, oh, this yeah. Because the, the thing that was really annoying with that was in Last Jedi. It's kind of like. It doesn't matter. Anyone can be special. Anyone, and anyone can be a hero. Yeah. Yeah. And then in Rise of Skywalker, they're like, no, yeah. the Force is still in the balls. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. I'm, I just, uh, anyway, we'll we'll we'll, we'll we'll yeah, we've gone on yeah, a big tangent. We'll rage. Yes, I was going to say this is I, not as Star Wars makes me angry watched, nowadays. Though. Yeah. I haven't watched enough of it to know. What, so solo movie. So yeah. for Troy, <laughs> started talking about how modern films are, are bad, and I'm like, yes, thank you. No, <laughs> no one listens to me when I talk about this anymore. Uh, so I guess with Troy, did it did it hold up for you to your memories of of watching it? And then what would you give it out of ten? Like, how many dudes in a horse would you give this? <laughs> Look, honestly, I was I, I really really enjoyed rewatching it the other night. I have to say, like I. And it's funny because, like, I've fluctuated on this film over the years because, like I said, you know, I, I watched it to the point of wearing the DVD out when I was about 13, 14, and then I, I sort of very, very abruptly stopped. I guess I kind of grew out of it. And I think I remember revisiting it, like, late in high school and being a bit like, oh, no, this sucks, and being really down on it and then leaving it for another few years. And then for another few years there, it kind of became an ironic drunk watch movie. It's like there's there's one of my best mates and I, like, whenever we, you know, have a few beers, we'll always end up watching either Troy or Revenge of the Sith. And, you know, and we just kind of laugh along and quote, the, or Jaws, but Jaws is actually a great movie. Jaws. But <laughs> my, my favorite <laughs> movie, some might argue, I might argue. But, you know, with, with Troy, it's funny because, like, the other night was probably, like, the first time I'd watched it, like, like not not ironically or not kind of as like this weird nostalgia throwback like no i'm just gonna sit down and watch it and i was really taken aback by how, and i didn't even expect to watch all of it because it was quite late i was like you know i had an early start the next day i was like look i'm just gonna i'll watch half of that i might watch the other half the next night and i sat and i watched all of it and i went to bed thinking about it and i was like oh you know what like it's flawed it's got problems there are some parts that need to be developed more there are some parts that you know like it, it definitely you can tell where the either the interest of the filmmakers or the studio were directing people to put things there's some aspects that don't hold up today but overall you know i think it's a really ambitious movie that really swings for the fences and they don't they, they really don't make it like that anymore and i think some of troy's failings might be part of that but overall you know in terms of how much i enjoyed it i, I would give it seven out of ten i think i uh, yeah I, I hadn't seen it before and i just didn't know what to expect because i was kind of expecting it to be i guess cheesier i was expecting it yeah. to be a bit a bit more like i don't know i think the most recent sort of gladiator-esque film i could think of was when um the one of the avengers no one of the thor 
Ragnarok? Is it Ragnarok? You know the one where he's fighting the Hulk? Yeah, yeah in Ragnarok. Uh, I was expecting yeah. a sort of gladiator-esque, sort of a bit cheesy, a bit more... I, I, I don't know why I was expecting that, because it doesn't set it up to be like that at all, but I was expecting it to be more current Hollywood. Yeah, more 300, and, maybe. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I was really pleasantly surprised with how much I enjoyed it, because I was going in seeing that it was three hours long. Um not realizing that I, I sort of assumed that three hours was the short version and that that was like a yeah there was a longer version and I was like oh I'm glad you didn't watch the four hour version <laughs> um I I was gripped do you think I want to watch it again I definitely want to watch the theatrical edition just because of the music um because there was the only time I found the music poignant in this one was when it stopped and there was just like some silence during um I think it's when Hector was killed and that was actually quite, and I was like, oh, oh gosh. And it sort of hits harder. But then it sounds like the way they do it in the theatrical edition is much more effective. Um, I think so, yeah. Really so, I, so I want to, I do want to watch that. I mean, I might give it a break for a, a bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's also made me really nostalgic for those um, those books. That I, well, that, that, that big um, anthology of Greek myths I had when I was a kid. Uh, I kind of want to get my mum to send that to me now. <laughs> so I can flip through it and make some good bedtime reading. Um, Slightly more, yeah, slightly less upsetting than the uh, the story tapes I get the boys to listen to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think. Yeah. They could be really violent and I just glossed over it because, to be fair, the standards are set pretty low for um, what I used to listen to before I went to bed as a kid. Um, I'd give this, I think I, I, I want to give it, um, yeah, eight uh, singing uh, widows out of ten. Like, the music was really... <laughs> <laughs> I, I I just it, that was the only bit that I really liked music wise was when they were like properly belting. Yeah, I just had such a great time that I do. It's it's really scratched an itch I didn't know I had for like a good historical romp. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I never got into Game of Thrones. I tried. I did try. I read the books, but then I, I, I just couldn't get into the TV. I didn't have access to it because I didn't have Sky when it came out. So I was only watching the odd episode. Which is not how you're supposed to watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> it really, Thrones. Doesn't, really doesn't work like that. Um, and I remember just watching it with my mum, and there just being like just a lot of sex and boobs. And I, to be fair, we used to watch True Blood together, so I don't know why it bothered me that time. Um, but I think, oh gosh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I'm really glad that I got to see this because it's not a film I would have picked up otherwise. That like it's just so not talked about these days. It's really fallen off the fallen off the radar, and no one's doing Greek. Well, apart from this, what sounds like vaguely half-assed Netflix thing, people aren't really doing um, Greek stuff at the moment. It's a shame because ah, oh, those togas mm. and the little crop, the little sort of crop top shawl thing that Brad Pitt was wearing in the like with the deep indigo dye, fantastic. I have doubts about the accuracy of the costumes in this film, um, but I'm not a Greek <laughs> specialist. Um, so I can't mm. I can't comment further, but mm, mm, he looked pretty. Oh, he was just stunning, wasn't he? This film's so nice to look at. <laughs> Apart from when people are getting their heads caved in. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of fruit punch being splashed around at those yeah. points. But oh, yeah. Actually, you're right. It's it's pretty grim. But oh, the the sex scenes and the the lying around looking like Greek, literally like Greek gods and Greek statues. Mm, very, very oiled. <laughs> 
but definitely his cousin. <laughs> definitely his cousin. <laughs> no one was ever. Oh yeah, no one's ever used dream. fighting or training each other in fighting as a metaphor for sex before. That's that's not a thing that happens. No, no one was gay in ancient Greece, and especially if they were, then being cousins would stop them. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Mutually exclusive. Famously. Um, yeah, I think the time didn't really shock me, like it being three hours, because I watched the extended version without realizing the director's cut. Um, it being three hours wasn't like I wasn't like, oh, this this is a normal epic amount of like epic film time, because I uh, the only other like epic that I've sat down and properly properly watched is Red Cliff, which is about four and a half hours long. So I was like, oh, it's three hours. That's just how long these films are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then no, it was it 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 is it has such good scenes and it has such good story elements, like the fight between uh, Achilles and Hector, and it, that it that is such a good fight scene and everything that is good about fight scenes. And it anything that's good about you can just watch that scene and understand everything about this. Like it's so good. And the the rest of it, a lot of it is just like meh. It's not bad. It's not good. It's just meh. It's just nothing. It's quite dull, underdeveloped story. Uh, but yeah, no, cause I'd never seen it before. Just kind of expected. I expected it to be okay because reading reviews, people were like, it read like people didn't couldn't work out if it was good or not. Like people were like, it's there. It's a film. You can watch it. Um. But yeah, I I, I kind of liked it. I think I'd give it six and a half. Uh, people inside a horse. <laughs> <laughs> no, six wooden surprise wooden horse gift. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say yeah, six people in that horse would not have fallen Troy. You know that's how grammar works. Does that work? Felled. Felled yeah. Troy. But yeah, no, I I just wish it would have was a bit more developed, and it is. It does feel like Troy is kind of the cursed epic, um, because apparently they've never got it right. It's only got um, 53 on Rotten Tomatoes. That seems yeah. low. That, yeah, it's a bit of a surprise. Well, it, it's, I think, I can't, I can't tell if people like it, and I don't know if I like it or I can't. I, I know I like bits of it. I don't know if I like the film as a whole. <laughs> Couldn't tell you. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Well, I think it's like... Aesthetically it, yeah, it... It copped a lot of flack when it came out, and I remember because it was the time when I was reading Film Geek magazines, like I was reading Empire magazine a lot when I was that age, and I remember reading all these bad reviews of Troy and then being like, well, this can't be right, and then reading them online because I loved it that much. <laughs> and that was kind of like maybe the first time I was like, well, hang on, like are the review is wrong, or am I wrong, or am I an idiot? And then eventually, you know... And like that, that was probably like you know a bit of a bit of an eye-opening moment for me of just being like, oh, just because something's in print doesn't mean I have to agree with it. But it, it does. It, it's funny because I do feel like you watch it now and you kind of go, oh, like it's there is something refreshing about it because it doesn't have the same hollow weightlessness that so much of what comes out nowadays has, and that's really refreshing. But I do wonder if it looks better nowadays than it did back then because. Put up yeah, against following like, after Lord of the Rings, Rings. yeah, it's always yeah. everything falls short after Lord of the Rings. Though. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's got a lot to do with it. Yeah, I hadn't seen this either. I think I'm I'm glad that you brought it to us all, Gabe, because yeah, like I'm kind of surprised none of us had seen it at least once. Or I can't imagine it being on TV because it'd be it last all it'd fucking day. Yeah, it could have been on the B, but could have been. Yeah. On, but but yeah, uh, I... probably after Watershed, so I wouldn't have seen it. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah I, 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 I did enjoy this actually. I, I would be interested in, yeah, watching the theatrical cut at some point, but, but not just yet. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd probably give this, yeah, seven, seven out of ten, um, Trojan rabbit sheds from Monty <laughs> Python. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it, it, it was a good time. I, I, I get there was a lot of kind of, it seemed to be kind of like, ah, oh, here's a big battle, here's a lull. Uh, we're gonna have a big battle again, and then here's a bit of a lull, and then just like a bit of a back and forth. Um, but yeah, it was. It was Is a good it a good time. idea to have a fight? No, let's fight. Yeah, <laughs> but the gods say we should. Okay, let's do it. Let's make great big burning balls of fire and <laughs> ambush the Greeks oh, at night. Oh, that was a fantastic yeah. scene, though. That was so well shot. It was. The and fireballs were brilliant. Yeah, it, it and terrifying. Like, it it you think, was. Yeah. Well, you could dodge a massive flaming ball coming towards you, but they're like. But there's so many. Yeah. <laughs> like you really can't. Oh, wish. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. It was a good time. All right. Well, I, I guess with that, I've been Dan. I have been Michael. And I've been Helena. And I've been Gabe. Thanks uh, for having me again. Yeah. Thank you for, for going back. It's been been great. Thank you for bringing having you on. Yeah. I feel like I've been on a bit of a journey because, like, I don't know. It's like I've, I've always, I've always kind of seen, like, my, my, like, nostalgic love of Troy is like slightly embarrassing like it's it's not like something like the Prince of Egypt where I would go into bat for that film any day of the week like with Troy there is part of me that's a bit just like maybe just because I was a kid so it's like you know because I was a kid and I saw it differently but like hearing hearing the fact that you guys really enjoyed it having not seen it before or you know enjoyed it to a degree having not seen it before then you go huh maybe you're like maybe people are too hard on this film maybe they're not maybe they are maybe it's just all subjective yeah. but it has been really nice to hear that I'm like huh Maybe I'm not alone in liking this one. Yeah. Um, maybe we even though I recognise that it is very flawed in many ways, you know, it's far from a perfect movie, but I think it's a good time. I think it is a really, really good. Yeah. Know, no, movie. definitely. I think it's. It made a lot of. It made some bad choices, but it made a lot of good choices in the way it told the story, and it did. It did keep me engaged, and I. Yeah, I have a pretty short attention span as well, so like that's <laughs> for a for the director's cut and all, like pretty impressive at this this point i normally you know i struggle to get through a 20 minute episode of is it cake <laughs> I, I i do like when you come on gabe because we get we get nice and analytical and that's nice to break up we we watched charlie's angels recently and you can't really be well if i come back again i'll choose something really frothy and we'll see how we go <laughs> It's really fun. Yeah. Well, Gabe, what what have you got going on at the moment? Brilliant. So I've got um, I've I've just had a Audible original come out, The Hitchhiker, which has gone to number one in Australia, which has been mind blowing. Oh, nice. Um, so that it hasn't come out overseas yet. So I think I believe I don't know when this is coming out, but I believe it comes out in or internationally on the fifth of October. So it came out on the fifth of September here in Australia, and um, Audible chose it for, like this massive promotion, and it's like that, just like you know brought it to a huge amount of eyes i don't know would have found it otherwise so that's been really really special so hitchhiker it's like a you know um contains sort of psychological thriller a bit like misery set in the car in the australian outback basically is the best way i can pitch it so so yeah that that's out and that that should be out pretty soon overseas if it's not out already by the time this episode drops um and that's probably the big one, one to Troy. how violent is it <laughs> uh less a, a lot less violent than my other stuff so like a lot less oh, violent okay. than the hunted or the inheritance but that said there are a couple of scenes <laughs> that made my mum call me in a shrieking horror so <laughs> it's not it's not bloodless um 
In fact, I okay. think maybe the bloody moments are a bit worse than the hunted because <laughs> there's just less of them. With a bit more impact. Yeah. Um, it's not quite as numbing mm. as the hunted, maybe. But <laughs> anyway, look, I'm, I'm super proud of it. Uh, people seem to like it so far, which is always nice to know. So, um, so yeah, if you, if you like sort of, you know, contained psychological thriller stuff and you like Aussie accents, then give it a listen. I think it's it'll be, it's an Audible original. So depending on your subscription, I think it comes free with an Audible subscription or trial so yeah check it out nice you can find this podcast on twitter and at instagram at hilton pod that's at h-i-l-t-m pod uh we're on discord as well and we have a patreon now mikey what are we doing for the patreon <laughs> we're gonna invade troy <laughs> that story being told is sorry my dog's uh Itchy. what are you doing <laughs> he's, he's rolling around on the bed and he's, he's shaking attention, and making attention. noises. Anyway, <laughs> loves attention. Uh, don't we all? <laughs>